Well, hey, good morning. My name is Sam, and I serve as one of the pastors here. It's so good to gather uh, with you guys this morning. Uh, If you haven't grabbed your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn to Luke chapter 13. We will be be in the verses we just heard read, verses 10 through 21. And so we gather together every Sunday as a church family, right, to remember uh, the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so, of course, we're going to do that today. Uh, But we're also going to see tangible expressions of that today as well, Uh, because one, there's a tank up here, which means, y'all, it's Baptism Sunday. So we want to celebrate people going public with their faith, yes, that Jesus' grace is sought and saved. And then secondly, uh, if you guys didn't know this, it's actually uh, this weekend, City Lights 10-year birthday as a church family. And so we want to celebrate that as well. Yeah, we can clap for that. Uh, And so as we get going this morning, I just want to ask, how many of y'all have ever had expectations of someone or something? You should all be raising your hands, guys. This is not starting well. Come on. Uh, We all have expectations, right? And so sometimes these expectations can be like good and normal. And so uh, you might have a job. And so when you go to work, It's a normal expectation that you would get paid for your work. And now if you're at a job and you're not getting paid, this might be your boss's passive way of saying, hey, you don't work here anymore. You might want to check in on that. Uh, But if you go to work, you'll get paid. That's a normal expectation. Uh, Maybe you're driving around Omaha and you come to an intersection in front of you, there's a green light. And so it's a good and normal expectation for you to drive through that intersection and expect everyone that's coming from other directions to stop. Uh, So we all have good normal expectations, but sometimes we have expectations that can be unrealistic or misguided or misinformed. And so uh, some of you guys in here are married. Maybe you're a newlywed. Maybe you've been married for decades or somewhere in between. And so ladies, think back to when you first got married. You may have thought that your new husband was going to be like tidy and helpful. And I know I'm generalizing and I'm okay with that. But the reality is, is early in your marriage, you might be like, oh, that towel is not on the rack, it's on the ground. And oh, your dirty clothes somehow made it next to the hamper, but not in the hamper. Like, I don't know why I get next to it, but can't get in. Uh, Maybe dishes don't always make it to the sink. Or maybe guys, uh, as you got married, you just thought, man, my new wife, she wants to watch football with me all day on Saturday. Oh, and then all day on Sunday. And then don't forget about Sunday night and Monday night. And then what happens is you realize in the midst of this, man, I might have had some misinformed expectations of what marriage was going to be like. Uh, Maybe you're in the room and you have kids and you just thought that out of the womb, they were going to be self-sufficient and obedient and just follow every word that you say. And very quickly, you realize that babies can't do anything but cry, pee, eat, poop, and sleep. And you have to help them with all of those things anyway. And then as they get older, you're like, man, I am correcting a lot. They don't just listen and say, yes, Father, I will follow your command, right? And so uh, maybe you're one of those people, uh, Willie hit this in his call to worship. Uh, You remember when the Huskers were like relevant and good. And so every year, maybe you think this is the year that the Huskers are going to do the thing again. And then the season happens and you're like, man, That was an unrealistic expectation. I was misinformed. And so what I'm getting at is we all have misguided and misunderstood and unrealistic expectations. And this is put on 
full display in our text today as we see Jesus heal a woman and interact with the synagogue ruler. And so today I want to preach a message that I've titled, Compassion, Humility, and the Kingdom. And the main idea that we're going to see in our text today is this, that the kingdom of God grows and expands in compassion and humility. And so one of the main themes that we've seen throughout Luke's gospel is that Jesus has come to usher in the kingdom of God. And so he's been showing and teaching his followers what the kingdom of God would be like as they walked with him. And yet what we see time and time again is the religious leaders of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, continually misunderstood uh, about the Messiah and they misunderstood what his kingdom would be like. And so church, the danger for us here this morning is that we can do the exact same thing. We can misunderstand the kingdom of God. We can have misinformed and misguided and misunderstood or have a misunderstanding of what the Savior and the King has done and what he is doing in our hearts and in the world. And so this simply can play out daily in our lives as we wrestle with whose kingdom am I going to live for today? And so the reality is we can live for the kingdom of God as a citizen of the kingdom Or we can live for some lesser kingdom, namely our own little broken down kingdom seeking to make much of ourselves. And so as we dive into our text this morning, I think it'd be helpful to just unpack a little bit, real briefly, uh, what the kingdom of God is. And so a simple and a concise description of the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is all about the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ as Lord and King over all. And so what this means is that God the Father, by the power of the Spirit, is bringing all things under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. And so if we remember back earlier in Luke, Luke chapter 4, as Jesus was beginning his uh, public ministry, he declares the kingdom of God has come. And then in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 9 that says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so what we see throughout Jesus' life and ministry after this is this is exactly what he's doing. He's proclaiming the good news that he, the Messiah, is here. He's healing the sick and the lame. He's setting captives free from their spiritual bondage, and he's delivering people from their oppression. And he's saying the year of the Lord's favor is here, and it's now, and it's me. And so he's ushering in his rule and his reign and his kingdom on this earth through his arrival and his presence. And so today's passage is all about the kingdom of God on display. And so as we look at this healing of this woman, this interaction with the synagogue ruler in these two short parables, what we're going to see is three truths that show us how to live for the kingdom of God today. And so let's dive in by looking at this first truth. And that's this, we live for the kingdom of God by rejoicing in the compassion of the king, by rejoicing in the compassion of the king. And so look with me at Luke chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. It'd be helpful if I was not in the book of Romans. Uh, So Luke chapter 13, 10 and 11 say this, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. 
she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And so a little context for what's going on in Luke's gospel. Uh, Back in Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus is ministering up in Galilee, and he makes a declaration that, hey, I'm going to head to Jerusalem uh, to die, to to die for the people. Uh, And so he's going on this journey down uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, and on his way, he's instructing his disciples on what the kingdom of God would be like. And as he goes, he's teaching, he's healing, and he's ministering to people. And so today is no different. He's teaching in a synagogue, and he's ministering on the Sabbath day. And so anytime uh, in Luke's gospel you see Jesus doing anything on the Sabbath or anything in a synagogue, in your mind there should be ding, 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 because the conflict's about to happen with the religious leaders of the day, and today is no different. And so teaching happened in the synagogue every day, but on the Sabbath, there tended to be a little bit of a larger crowd because people weren't working or laboring, so they would come to the synagogue to worship. And so uh, today, uh, what we see is a, a, a crowd had gathered, and one of them was a woman who had been disabled by a demonic spirit. And so she'd been hunched over, you guys, for 18 years, unable to turn her head, lift her head, lift her eyes. And so a little side note that I want to say here with this is we don't need to read into this uh, woman's uh, disability what the text is not saying. And so it's not saying that this woman had sinned, and as a result, she was afflicted with this disability. And it's not saying that all sickness and disability is the result of some demonic force. But what I think we can take from this instance is Uh, we can understand and realize that we as human beings are holistic beings. There is a spiritual aspect and a physical aspect, and these things can interact and play off of each other. And so today, she had a spiritual thing going on that was causing some physical things to happen inside of her. And so due to her affliction uh, and the length in which she had had it, she would have been known in this city. And so this had plagued her much of her life, and yet in her affliction, she makes the effort to get to the synagogue that day. And so let's look at Jesus' response to her in verses 12 and 13. It says, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. And can I just say, wow, right? Like, what a, what a scene. Because this woman, for 18 years, she had suffered. And some of us think we can relate with that because we've been long-suffering Nebraska Husker fans, or for me, a Dallas Cowboy fan. And we think, oh man, I've suffered. It pales in comparison to this woman's physical suffering over these years. And so the reality was she's probably ignored by people in the city who knew of her. They probably called her names. They probably accused her of things. And the default posture of people in the city was not to move towards her, but to move away from her. She was probably seen as an outcast in her suffering. And the beautiful thing here is that is not what Jesus does. He does the opposite. He moves towards this woman. He not only sees her in her suffering, he calls out to her. He touches her and he heals her. And so I want you to imagine, if you would, this woman's experience. I'm going to invite you to actually uh, participate in this if you can. And so I get you all are sitting down, but imagine, or just lean forward like your back is arched. Touch your chin down to your sternum. Some of y'all can participate, some of y'all can, that's fine. Uh, But I want you to imagine, right, like your sternum is, or your chin's on your sternum, you're leaning forward, and you're stuck in this state. 
It's very comfortable, right? And so for uh, 18 years, this woman had been brought low, stuck in a hunched and crooked state, unable to move her neck, her head, uh, lift her eyes. And yet in this moment, Jesus moves towards her in compassion. And so imagine him saying, you were healed and laying his hands on you. And as you straighten up your back and you raise your chin from your sternum, you're looking into the face of your healer and your savior who has just had compassion on you. Can you imagine the freedom that this woman experienced in that moment? Can you imagine the joy as she looks at Jesus? Can you imagine the worship coming out of her mouth? She's been set free. And so what Jesus is displaying here is the kingdom of God comes to set the captives free. The king comes in compassion and he sets captives free. And church, this is good news for us because this is Jesus's posture towards us. In our sin and our suffering, he doesn't move away. He initiates, he moves towards us. He sees us in our suffering. He's the suffering servant who can realize what suffering is like from Isaiah 53 because he's acquainted with grief and sorrow. He's the great high priest from Hebrews 4 who can sympathize with us in our weakness and our suffering. Praise God for this. And I think as we think about how to apply this truth, I just want you to remember Jesus's compassion towards you. If you're in Christ, in this room, he has lavished his compassion on you. And so I know on this side of glory, we're all going to have hard times and seasons of suffering. We're not immune to that. But can I just say that I'm thankful that the Bible like, doesn't skip over that or ignore that. It actually engages in the suffering of humanity. And it points us to the truth that Jesus has compassion on us in our suffering. And now this doesn't mean that he's always going to immediately remove the suffering from you or heal you. But what it does remind us is that if we're in Christ, our suffering has a purpose. And we have a hope in our suffering. And his name is Jesus. He's with us in our suffering. He sustains us in our suffering. And he's forming us more into his image in our suffering. And so, church, we can trust him in hardship because he's working and sustaining in the midst of it. We've got to remember his compassion towards us. And if you're in here this morning going, I don't know that I've experienced Jesus's compassion, can I just say, look at the cross of Christ? Because his greatest act of compassion was displayed on the cross. You and I and everyone in here were dead in our sin. We were suffering in our sin. We were separated from God, and he moved towards us in compassion. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for us so that we could be made right with him. And so our greatest need has been met. We have reconciliation with God the Father through the compassion of God the Son. And so church, would we remember his compassion towards us? And would that lead us to rejoice in him and give thanks to him for his compassion? And so that's the first truth that we see from this text. Uh, let's look at the second way that we can live for the kingdom of God. And that is by rebuking hypocrisy, posing as the kingdom. Rebuking hypocrisy, posing as the kingdom. And so pick up with me in verse 14. It says this, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, 
and not on the Sabbath day. And can I just say, wow, right? Like, there's some whiplash going on here, right? So in this setting, in this synagogue, there's people rejoicing and worshiping the Lord because he is just healed. And then we have Captain Tons of Fun get up here, start spouting off his rules about not uh, doing these things on this day, right? It's like whiplash in the scene. And so what is clear is that this brother had no understanding of this woman's suffering. He had no eye to witness the beauty of Christ's compassion. He had no heart to rejoice in this woman's healing, and he had no ear to hear the praise and worship of the king that was coming from her mouth. So he's like the opposing team's fans at Memorial Stadium when the Huskers win, right? Huskers fans are going nuts, and then there's always this like small group of fans who they're probably complaining about the ref or making excuses. That's this man here. Most everyone else is celebrating this woman's miraculous healing and the compassion of Jesus, and this brother's complaining about it. And so he gets up in the midst of the celebration. And what I love is he doesn't even address Jesus or acknowledge Jesus. He turns to the crowd and is like, what is wrong with you people? There's six other days in the week. Come on the other days to get healed. And so his job was to keep order and follow the rules of the synagogue. And this brother's pushed all his chips in on this. He's all in. And so his life was full of religious activity and rule following but he did not have a heart that knew God. He's not rejoicing with the crowd. He's seeking to rebuke the crowd. And the amazing thing here is that his heart was more crooked than that woman's back was that Jesus healed. And I want us to look at Jesus's response to him in verses 15 through 17. It says, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. And so what I love is that uh, this is actually Jesus's compassion here, because he's lovingly calling uh, this brother out and the guys like him in their hypocrisy. And so they're full of religious pride, and the Lord's seeking to humble them. He's pointing out to the synagogue ruler and the people like him, like, hey, you've missed the boat on the Sabbath. You've missed the purpose of the Sabbath. And so let's briefly talk about the Sabbath, right? We know uh, God, the Father, God created uh, all things in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And then he gives a command to his people to keep the Sabbath day, to to, uh, observe it, and to keep it holy. And so it's pointing to the truth that uh, on the seventh day, we should rest. We should intentionally look to the Lord and find rest in him. And so it points to this truth that true rest and true life is found in God alone. And so this means that the Sabbath rest is not found just in the absence of doing. It can be good for us to not do things if it puts our focus on Jesus, But rather, our true Sabbath rest is found in relationship with Jesus. And so uh, Jewish rabbinical uh, tradition had strayed away from using the Sabbath to focus on God, so to look towards him. Instead, they started focusing on what you should not do and rules. And so what they're doing is even making up their own little man-made rules here of what's work and what's not work. And in the midst of it, they're actually doing work and saying, hey, I'm not doing work. And so they're caring for their animals on the Sabbath, and uh, Jesus is saying, hey, 
That's hypocritical, right? Because you're saying, hey, we can't care for our people or uh, do work on the Sabbath, but what you're doing is caring for your animals and loosing them on the, sab- on the Sabbath day. And if people are significantly more important than animals, why would we not be able to loose this woman from her bonds uh, and her chains so that she could be freed and cared for on the Sabbath? And so, in fact, if the Sabbath is about finding rest and liberation and freedom in God alone, then there's actually no better day to heal than on the Sabbath because this woman experienced freedom and hope and rest in Jesus. And so he's, the synagogue ruler is legalistically trying to impose religious rules on others, and he's not keeping him himself. And so Jesus is lovingly and compassionately calling this out, rebuking it, and confronting his hypocrisy because it's on full display for all to see. And so, church, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can relate with this synagogue ruler more than we care to admit. Like, I think the default posture of our hearts is one that is all about me and my wants and my needs and my desires, and legalism and hypocrisy can creep in. Like, humility is not the default posture. It's something that has to be cultivated and fought for. And so I think we can all acknowledge that it's much easier to spot hypocrisy outside of us than it is to own hypocrisy inside of us. And so I like, it's like I can easily spot hypocrisy in the culture. We can look out and be like, that's hypocritical, that's hypocritical. And I can be an expert in the hypocrisy of others. But what I don't want to do is actually look for the hypocrisy in my own heart. And that's actually what was kind of hitting me this week as I was preparing this message, right? I think hypocrisy can come out in subtle ways, and I think it can come out in bigger, blatant ways. And so uh, I was thinking little subtle ways that this comes out in my life. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this. I'm the best driver in Omaha. And so if everyone could just drive like me, like everything would be efficient and strategic. We'd all flow at the same pace. And so, you know, even this week I'm on Dodge, and I, I love to drive five miles an hour over the speed limit. It's barely breaking the law, right? Cops in the room, don't pull me over. But I can uh, judge other people who like to fly by going 10, 15, 20 miles an hour over. I'm like, Lord, get them. Send the sirens. Send the light. Go get them. Justice needs to come. And what am I doing? I'm being hypocritical, right? Like I'm driving faster than the law says, and I want them to be punished for it. Uh, I can also get frustrated with the driver who turns, uh, does a left turn on the yellow light or the red light. And so I'm not originally from Omaha, but one of the things I learned very quickly in Omaha is just because the light's green, don't, don't go, because people love to make those left turns like well after it's red, right? And so I can get frustrated with the driver that makes that left turn on a yellow light or a red light, and then I'll go to the next intersection, you guys, and I'll do the exact same thing because I want to be an efficient driver. It's not efficient to stay at that light, right? And I can be hypocritical there. This can play out in bigger ways as well. So uh, my son, uh, Haddon, he's 10 years old. He's got little sisters, And his little sisters love to play with him and his stuff and mess with him and all of that. And I can be like, buddy, hey, we use kind and gracious words. We use our words to build others up, not tear them down. We speak kindly. And then like 30 minutes can pass and I can hear him yelling at his sisters. And what do you think I do? I go over and use my words. No, I literally start yelling at him and dropping shame and guilt on him because I'm like, I just told you not to do this. And in that moment, I'm doing the very thing that I told him not to do. It's hypocritical. 
Uh, I met with a young husband in the church this week, right, as he's figuring out marriage. And it's like, man, you've got to extend grace and forgiveness and love to your wife because Jesus has extended that to you. And so in conflict, you're not all about, man, this is what she did and what she did and what she did. You need to look internally first and own some things in your own heart and life, right? I can coach and give counsel and then I can go home and not give grace and love to my wife. We can be in conflict and I can very quickly be like, girl, shun, we done. I'm not gonna extend grace. You need to own what you did and I don't wanna look at my own heart, right? It's hypocritical. All of these things are pride and selfishness playing out in my heart and life. It's me not practicing what I preach and it's hypocrisy put on full display. And yet, by the grace of Jesus in his compassion and his love for me, the fact that this hypocrisy comes out is his very grace. Because I either have the opportunity to keep playing games and being hypocritical, or I can step in and seek to uproot those false things, confess and repent of sin, so that his gospel can take deeper root. So I can walk in pride and selfishness and be hypocritical, or I can walk in humility and be transformed by the gospel. And so church, let me ask you as we talk about these things, are there areas in your life, places in your life where you're being hypocritical? Where is Jesus lovingly confronting you in your pride, in your legalism, in your self-righteousness, in your hypocrisy, and asking you to humbly own and confess and repent of that to him? And if you're in the room going, Sam, I'm good, there's nothing hypocritical in my life, that's evidence there's probably some hypocritical things going on in your life. And so ask the Spirit of God to uh, observe and uh, bring that to light. Or you could even just graciously go to a uh, friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a spouse, a child, and go, hey, are there some gaps in my life? Are there some places where I'm being hypocritical? And humbly receive what they share with you. And so church, we must rebuke and reject the hypocrisy that is in our own hearts and lives and seek to walk in humble dependence on, with Jesus. And so that's the second truth uh, of the way that we can live out the kingdom now. But let's look at the final way that we can live out the kingdom of God today. And that's by remembering the nature and purpose of the kingdom. Remembering the kingdom's purpose and nature. And so look with me at verses 18 to 21. They say, He said, therefore... What is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was leavened. And so just by way of reminder, I gave a description of the kingdom of God right in the introduction. I'm going to repeat it again here. And so the kingdom of God is all about the rule and reign of Jesus. It's God the Father by the power of the Spirit bringing all things under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And so that's the purpose of the kingdom, to bring all things under the rule and reign of the King. And so Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom in his first coming, in his incarnation, but he'll consummate the kingdom in his second coming. And so what that means for us uh, as people who've trusted in Jesus is we live in this already but not yet state. And so 
the kingdom of God has already been ushered in uh, through the personal work of Jesus Christ, but it has not been fully established until Christ returns in glory. And so in light of uh, the healing that just happened with this woman in the synagogue, Jesus now gives two illustrations of what the kingdom of God is like in this already but not yet state. And so he's saying, here is the nature of the kingdom of God right now. And so the first illustration or first parable that he gives is of a mustard seed. And so this mustard seed is small, it's planted, and it grows into a tree that's big enough for birds to live in. And so what this is illustrating is that the kingdom of God began in what seems like a small and insignificant way, but it's going to expand so much that it's going to have a huge effect and influence on the world around us. And so practically speaking, what was ushered in by Jesus as a baby in a manger in a barn that then went to 12 disciples some 2,000 years later is expanded to millions of people around the world today that claim Jesus is Savior and Lord. And so this gospel has gone forth and expanded and borne fruit across millennia and borders and people groups. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. It's growing and expanding. The second parable or second illustration we get is with leaven. And so we hear about a small amount of leaven that's put into a large amount of flour. And so what this is illustrating is that the kingdom of God once again began small and in a seemingly unseen way, but it expands all through uh, everything and has a huge effect and influence. And so just like yeast works in and through flour, the gospel is going to work in us and through us to produce growth and change. And so the kingdom is growing and expanding in invisible ways in our hearts. And so what Jesus is exposing is how the religious leaders of the day misunderstood the kingdom of God. They thought the kingdom of God was all about political power and militaristic power that uh, the Messiah would come and just take over the entirety of the world. But what they missed was that the Messiah was coming to meet their greatest need. Their greatest need was not deliverance from Rome. Their greatest need was to be delivered from the bondage of sin and Satan. And so he came to meet that need. And so the nature of the kingdom of God is that it begins humbly in what seems in a a small way, and it grows to be this significant and ever-growing and expanding kingdom in our hearts and throughout the world. And so, church, the kingdom of God invades your heart and life when you trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, the King. And so just like yeast permeates the dough and transforms it, the good news of the gospel invades our hearts and transforms us. And so when you put your faith and work, or your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And just like the mustard seed grows and expands, God has called the church to live as citizens of the kingdom by sharing the good news of the kingdom to those around us. And so City Light, let me remind you that the most important citizenship you have is in the kingdom of heaven. And we're invited every day to live for some kingdom. And the question we have to wrestle with and uh, fight for every day is, are we going to live for the kingdom of God or are we going to live for some lesser known kingdom? And so we can run to lesser things and look for hope and love and peace and joy and purpose. We can seek to make much of ourselves in our own little kingdoms, or we can seek to die to those things so that we can live and make much of the kingdom of God 
through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so church, are you living your life in light of your citizenship in the kingdom of God? Or are you living for a lesser kingdom? Put it another way, what's ruling and reigning in your heart and life today? And so these parables, church, should give us confidence to know that the kingdom of God is ever-growing and ever-expanding until the day when Jesus returns and all things are brought under his rule and his reign. And so when he comes to consummate his kingdom, all things are going to be redeemed and made new by his grace and for his glory. And so church, would we remember and long for that day? But as we live today, would we faithfully seek to live as kingdom citizens who live for the king in compassion and humility? Would we seek to share of his kingdom to those around us? Let me pray for us. And so, Father, we are thankful for Jesus, the king who came to usher in a kingdom. And this morning, we see your kingdom is a kingdom of compassion, a, com- uh, a kingdom that takes initiative to move towards sin and suffering. It works in our hearts and our lives, and it brings us in to relationship with the King. And so we thank you for your grace that has come and it made manifest through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so would we this morning remember your grace and compassion towards us? Would we walk in that truth daily? Would we rebuke and reject hypocrisy in our hearts and lives and the things that uh, distract us for living for your kingdom? And would we be faithful kingdom citizens today that are seeking to share about the good news of your kingdom to those around us? And so, Jesus, we pray that you would come and you would have your way in our hearts. Would you reveal any way in us where we are walking hypocritically, where we're not remembering the good news of the gospel and our citizenship and the kingdom of God. And so we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name I pray. Amen.